0: My guest today, Miles Chamley Watson, is on a mission to take fencing mainstream. A British-born, six-foot-four black man covered in tattoos with bleached blonde hair, he breaks pretty much every generation's old assumption and mold about what the staid, traditionally conservative, and often elitist sport is all about. Miles actually struggled a lot as a kid, especially with focus and attention and school, until one day a teacher introduced him to fencing. That moment for him, well, it changed everything. He was obsessed and it gave him this physicalized way to learn and to develop intense focus that soon changed everything in his life and became a bit of a driving force. Miles wanted to be the best in the world and win the Olympics. And indeed, already a world champion and an Olympic medalist, he's well on his way. Miles also decided to redefine the public perception of the sport to make it more Modern and alive and high profile, really appealing to a younger generation, especially those like him who were often excluded from the pursuit. And he's on a mission to also reimagine the financial side of the pursuit, introducing a level of popular appeal, relevance and excitement that's landed him huge social media followings and big endorsement deals with brands like Coach and Red Bull. So excited to share this conversation with you. I'm Jonathan Fields, and this is Good Life Project.
1: Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring.
0: You're up in uh Vancouver doing some training, but pretty much raised in New York. But I guess even before that, um born in London or around London. Um yep. tell me a little bit about sort of early life for you, um, before you headed to the States.
2: I was born in London, born in between Brixton and Ealing Broadway, which is like kind of outside London. I was playing football growing up. It was kind of the only sports that football, rugby, cricket kind of what london is known for and then my mother met my stepdad who's my dad and he was like hey i'm moving back to uh new york city you want to come and she said yes and i was like no i did not want to go um i was 10 you know it's like the prime age when you all your friends are there and so that really kind of sucks for me uh and i get thrown right into public school in the middle of the year because we kind of moved i would say like a January, February, like a weird time, right into public school. And I was obviously like a kind of pain in the butt, like an aunt in my pants, kid. just kind of getting into trouble all the time. And I got kicked out of the public school, PS 37, hello. Um, and then my mother met this lady who was in the admissions program for the Dwight school, which is a pub- private school. And I was like, okay, let's give it a shot. Let's kind of try it out and see what happens. And I got in by my charm, and um, as punishment, well not punishment, as like a stipulation or, or whatever you wanna call it, I had to pick up tennis, badminton or fencing from three to 4.30 as like my extra curriculum punishment. I was like, whatever, swords of fun, have fun with this. And I was like, oh wow, like I can stab you and not get into trouble, like this is quite fun. And then slowly started to get better in school, and just kind of fell in love with the sport of fencing, just the art of, you know, one-on-one combat, felt like a little superhero. Uh, and then, you know, that was when I really started to take the sport seriously when I moved to America.
0: Yeah. I mean, it sounds like also, um, I know you you describe yourself as uh, very, uh, I'm like, I remember reading this quote, very ADHD, super crazy, couldn't sit still. You couldn't tell me anything. I was this hothead kid from London. When you end up, at Dwight, it sounds like also part of what was going on with you is learning struggles and attention struggles. Yep. And so part of the was part of the fencing then was that required was the was sport required for everyone or were people looking at you and saying, hey, listen, this kid needs to be he needs to explore the world and to learn and like to to move his body in a way that's different in order to sort of like allow him to sort of be able to 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 focus back in uh, and be himself.
2: But yeah. So great question. So I honestly think it was someone they saw as like this kid kind of ADHD, AD, ADD, dyslexic, whatever you want to call him. Let's give him a sport where he kind of has to figure things out, right? Because fencing's like chess and boxing. You have to use your mind, but also you have to kind of think ahead. So I think they saw this as like, I mean, most kids weren't fencing, you know, like I think it was a select few, maybe like 10 kids in my class. And I think that's kind of what they saw in me. And the lady named Ellen Grayson is the woman who changed my life. She was like, Miles, I think not only can you get into college. And I was like, college, what's that? in London's like university. I was like, I didn't think that was even a possibility. And then that's when I really was like, okay, this sport is not just like the parent trap. It's really got some beautiful combat, but like mental warfare that kind of encumbers into one umbrella. And I think that is what drew me to the sport. Yeah. Do
0: do you remember the first time you picked up, I don't know if it would have been a foil back then or whatever it was. Like, do you remember having an immediate reaction or a sense that like, oh, Uh this is
2: different? I do. So we were in the gym and it was foam swords. like foam swords. Like I was like 11. You couldn't even like actually use the real ones yet. So it's foam. We were like hitting each other in the head with them. And she's like, Miles, like pay attention. <laughs> I'll never forget. I was like, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And then I was like, when do we get to use the real ones? And she was like, you know, when you get to a certain level, I was like, okay. And then that was when I was like, I want to try the real sword. So it was like maybe two weeks to three weeks of this foam sword kind of, but I'll never forget it. It was like this little gym and there were padded wolves. I don't know why they're padded walls. And it was like 10 of us in the class and ranging from 10 to 14 and that was my first memory of the sport
0: yeah and it sounds like for you the like you immediately had to go. you're kind of like okay i want to be done with the film
2: <laughs> yeah exactly i was like okay this is kind of fun but like where's the real sebang and that's when i was like oh it's possible so just kind of keep going and then now we're here it's, honestly like it's a wild ride
0: yeah I mean, when, when you pick it up at 10 or 11 years old, right? There are 10 kids in the class. Um, Dwight is a well-known, uh, school in New York city. Um, was fencing kind of an unusual thing for kids to do there or how, how is it looked at with your fellow students?
2: Oh, it's not a cool thing. <laughs> it's not like a, oh, you fence? No, but I was like, what's wrong with that? I was like, you put a ball in the hoop. Cool. You know, like no disrespect to anybody playing basketball. I love that sport too. But I was like, what's so not cool about playing with swords? You know what I mean? I was like, I basically wanted to be a superhero and turn that into my passion, into my job, essentially. So you get made fun of all the time. What do you do, play with sticks today? And I'm like, mate, oh, you just wait. And then that kind of fueled me into this, what I am now, I think, was people telling me, you know, what are you going to do with this sport? Like, what are you going to do with it? I can't make any money. It's not cool you know, like, I didn't get any girls. And I'm like, well, girls aren't like, like a sword fighter. You know, I said, I was like, okay. And then that's kind of what fueled me at that age. It's like, oh, you don't think I can do this? Watch. And then it's went and turned into a different animal then.
0: Yeah. So it's almost like people saying, okay, you're doing something that's not all that acceptable, not all that cool. It's not going to give you status or money or power or relationships so why bother doing it? And you're like, just, and, and that for you, it's interesting because especially as a kid in the teens where you've just come from another country, you really just want to be accepted. A lot of kids would have probably caved and said, let me just do whatever's going to let me fit in the most here. And for you, it was the exact opposite. You're like, no, 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 I'm going to show them all.
2: Oh, I could just, I never get these people's faces. Oh my God. They were like, "Dude, pick up something cool, man. You're from London, play, play soccer. And I was like, what's soccer? It's football, first off. And I was playing football, too, at the same time, until about 14 as well. Then I was like, you know what? You guys should have never fueled this beast because I'm not stopping. And then I was like, Bick. and I started to get better in school. right?" As I started to dedicate more time to fencing, I started to get into less, less trouble. And then once I found fencing, boom, 9-11 hits. And I'm like, oh, like my stepdad, who's working in finance at the time, was working at the World Financial Center, which was right next to the World Trade Center. He was late that morning. I mean, crazy. Couldn't even. And he got, everybody got fired. So he had no job, nothing. So we had to move to Philadelphia and get ready for this. They throw me into a Quaker school. And I'm like, what is Quaker? I'm like, oats? Like, yeah. And when I tell you that didn't last very long, I'll kick that right away. You basically have to sit still for I think it's twenty minutes a day from meeting for worship. And I'm just like, guys, all due respect, this is not working for me. You you call your teachers by their first name, like, hey Steve. I'm like, this is weird. It's a very Amish kind of Way, I think, still, or it was back then. I think a lot of Amish kids were there. And I just was so out of place. A London kid who fenced. I don't know. Like, no one even knew what that meant. I literally they thought I put up fences. I'm not even kidding you. They thought I put up fences for a living.
0: Yeah. I mean, by the time you, you moved to Philly, um, so that would have been 2001, right? Yeah. So, did you identify? Because there's, there's like this, there's a point where people tend to say, oh, I do this thing. And then you, it becomes so much a part of you that you change, you start saying, I am a. So instead of saying like, oh, like I I fence, you say, I am a fencer. It becomes like an identity level thing, like sort of like so core to who you are. By the time that you moved to Philly, do you feel like you had made that transition or were you still sort of like earlier on? Like it was just something you do. It wasn't so much something that you
2: are. Yeah, I don't think it was until I would say 14, 15. So, yeah, I'll tell you about the journey. So, I was in Philadelphia, right? Yeah. Nobody fenced. The a- atmosphere was just, didn't like it. And I was like, Mom, I'm an, I need to go back to New York City. She was like, Well, okay, well, there's two trains you can take. So, I would take off to school. This is, how, this is when I realized I, I am a fencer. This is when it changed for me. I would go off to school. I would leave at 210, and I would catch a 220 train from paoli which is like out by there and i would go from paoli to 30th street station i'd take a sorry three trains i'd go from 30th, 30th street station to trenton on new jersey on septa and then i take new jersey transit from trenton to penn station it was like three hours of train, and i get there at like 5 30 take a 6 a, 6 p.m class Till like eight thirty nine, then I take the train back, and I get home around eleven. I was twice a week, on my own. This is when I was like, I'm offensive. Like this is my job. Like people thought I was crazy. Literally, people thought I was mad. My mom was like, "Okay, you're insane." I was like, "Yeah, just let me be. This is I want to do this." And then I was like, "I can't do this anymore. I can't go to as quicker school." Thank God I got kicked out. And then from there, I am about 15. I go to a boarding school in Long Island. (laughs) And I was like, all right, mom, love you. Bye. And I was like, this is it. And I would go every day from three to eight. And I would dedicate my life to the sport at 16 on my own. Um, I come back late.
1: It was like, it was
2: weird. I had to wait for someone to pick me up from the school. Or take a taxi on my own. It was like some very lonely time because I was on my own. I didn't have any like friends at the time. Well, I had a lot of friends, but like not really friends who understood what I was doing. And you had to be in bed by ten, but they let me stay up to eleven to finish my work. So you miss out on a lot. Didn't go to any dances, or I went to one prom, just because all I wanted was to be the best at the sport.
0: Yeah. When did you start to realize? I mean, obviously, you know when you're traveling on a train back and forth for hours and hours a day, twice a week from Philly to New York, just to do this thing, something clicks in your brain that says, okay, this is bigger. You know, like this isn't just something I do for fun. Like this is, this is a part of who I am. And then you end up in this boarding school in Long Island. Did you have a sense for where you wanted this to lead you? Like, was there even a path that like people that, that was clear to you?
2: Yes. I wanted to go to the Olympics. I remember seeing some guys at my club that, enough, One of them is my coach now that I wanted to go to the Olympics. That was it. I wanted to actually, I never forget this because in school, they'd write you like, what do you want to do? Like it was to become world champion and Olympic champion because nobody in the history of my sport has ever done either. I mean, for an, an American at the time or somebody from London or British person, it was always Italians or Russians or French or um, Chinese. So. That's when I was like, okay, I want, to, I want to be the best it's ever been. And then that's when I was like, nothing's going to stop me until I get there.
1: There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and
2: gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss
1: medications like Wegovy and ZepBound for those who qualify.
0: for free shipping on your order and a 365-day return. That's quincecom com slash GLP to get free shipping and 365-day returns. Quince.com slash GLP or just click the link in the show notes. Trust me, your wardrobe will thank you. When you start competing, tell me about the culture, because I, I think, you know, you talk about basketball, football, baseball, soccer, like, All the sort of like mainstream sports with big professions around it and crowds and stuff like that. I think everyone has a sense for what the culture is around the sport. But fencing is a whole different world. You know, it's sort of, I feel like it's almost invisible to almost everybody except for the people who fence. You know, we've heard this thing exists. We know that certain people at Ivy League universities do it. Um, Certain, you know, like elite clubs, but people just don't have any sense... Tell me a little bit of just really sort of like about the culture of the sport.
2: So the culture of the sport is still very elitist, predominantly white, right? Still has that of just you do it in college and, you know, it's very stuffy. And there's not many people that are black or mixed race or whatever you want to call it, you know, that look like me. So it's very a judgmental culture. It's, it's very like you have, to have a lot of money to kind of get into the sport. I'm lucky that I found Ellen Grayson who helped me out. But it's, it, the stigma is very, you know, let's go to a fencing match, let's drink some champagne, let's wear a suit and watch them fence. That's kind of what it is, what it still is. So my goal when I was seeing these competitions was this has to change. There needs to be more diversity. There needs to be more energy. There needs to be, why your competition is not broadcast on TV? Like, this is crazy. So I was like, you know, like, we need to change this. And that's what I kind of set out my mission to be was this has to change because it's, it's such an unaccessible sport, really.
0: Yeah. I mean, it sounds like for you, there was a love of the sport itself, but you sort of like widened your lens too mm-hmm. and said, there's a bigger issue here. It's really exclusionary and also just not getting a lot of attention. And like you said you know, earlier in our conversation, this is sword fighting. It's actually pretty cool.
2: Exactly. <laughs>
0: Like, why would this be? Why would this be like kept in this tiny little, you know, like pocket over here, and only certain people can do it, and only certain people watch it? So your mission was bigger,
2: way bigger, yeah. And I was like, you know what? When I'm done with the sport, it will never be the same, and it won't be. (laughs) If
0: people people could see the smile that just went across (laughs) your face,
2: (laughs) I mean, it wasn't. We we have a long ways to go, but we're on the right track, you know. But it takes someone to kind of break those barriers down. That might not be easy, but I'm grateful for like support of all my sponsors who saw me and, and, and the vision and people that have kind of helped open doors for me. So I don't forget anybody along the journey, but it, we still have a long ways to go still.
0: Yeah. I mean, you mentioned the sport is, is predominantly white or was and and it sounds like still is, sort of like white men. You coming into it in the early days when you start to actually enter competition, did you sense any either quiet or overt racism or anything that, where, where you like felt uncomfortable simply because of who you are.
2: Yeah, I mean, I'm also just different. Like, I don't care about I mean, I obviously see it all the time. It's, I don't know why it affected me. But the weird thing is, is, like, it's the referees who don't want you to win or be on the podium, right? And it's like, if you make it so clear, they can't do anything. And I would see it all the time. I will never forget the time. I hope this guy listens to this podcast. I don't remember his name. I was 15, and I was number one in the country, right? And I had to win, I had to make a top eight in the Junior Olympics to qualify for the World Championships. So, oh, it's easy. I get ninth in the Juniors because this guy, this man, gave me nine red cards nine red cards that's nine points against me it goes to 15 points and when i tell you when i felt so helpless i'm a 15 year old kid and i was like why is this happening and then my coach was like it's because you're black and i was like what do you mean he was like yeah there's never been someone on your team like that i was like what who who cares and then i was like oh wow and i was so angry like this is one time i was really angry i never forget this we're in cleveland ohio Oh, and I had food poisoning that day too. And then the next day was the under 17, which was the team I was trying to make. And when I tell you, I won and I killed everyone, but I missed the team by two points. I sat in the drug testing room because we first time ever get drug tested, and I was like so happy because I thought I qualified, right? And then the point system, boom, whatever, I didn't qualify, and I was like. I would never have this taste in my mouth again. And since that day, I've made 15 straight teams. And that's when the first time I was like, okay, I'm I'm going to make sure this never happens to another kid like me because maybe another kid might not be strong enough to come back and be, you know? And that was one That was one of many where really stuck in my mind. I see this guy still to this day. I still see him in competitions. And I don't even let him come near me. He can not even come near me anymore. He talks to my coach my people around me just because I don't even want to give access uh yeah that guy really that guy really pissed me off
0: right yeah i mean it's interesting as you were talking i was thinking about olympic gymnasts actually and how you know in theory you know everything is just you know you tally up the points and whoever gets the most points wins but really it's so subjective underneath that because you can either award or not award points And then there was, when I was a kid, I was a gymnast and I competed aggressively until I was about 20. And I remember they would reward what they called virtuosity points. And this was where subjectively they could either give you points or punish you because it just didn't like who you were or your style or the things you do. And you saw some gymnasts actually in the last decade at at the Olympic level getting punished because they were different from the mold. You know, They were different from the culture and the expectation. It's funny because- I didn't realize until you just shared it that that exists in fencing too, because I kind of figured everyone gets points. Like it's it's based purely on a number system. You know, like the touches happen. You Everyone knows it because the foils are wired to trigger it. But I had no idea that you could then, people could subject subjectively really interfere with that whole process.
2: So our sport, I would say besides gymnastics, which is the most subjective and insane thing I've ever seen, because i watched at the Olympics and Simone's always a good friend of mine, always girls. Well, our sport is referee. So if someone doesn't like you, he can literally just say, huh, I'm the referee. And, you know, like like he might get banned the next tournament, but he can literally do what he wants. You know, we have some great referees as well, amazing ones. There's some who, you know, might not like your style, might not like who you are or how big you're getting. You know, some people just don't like that. So, yeah, and it's hard to get a, a one light action, right? My coach is like, make it a one light. I'm like, I wish I could every time. It's not that easy. but. There's a lot of subjectiveness in my sport, which is kind of what I'm trying to eliminate somehow. So I'm working with my sponsors to kind of figure out how we make it way more clean cut because it's not fair.
0: Yeah. But I mean, when you think about um, where you've been and sort of like what you've built also, I'm curious for you what your what your experience is of the actual process. So like if you think about stepping into a match and I, make, maybe I'm, I may get the language wrong, so correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, there's sort of like this one boundaryed area called the piece where you kind of you know move back and forth with your opponent on it. Tell me about the feeling that you get. I'm I'm so curious about what happens to not just you but people when they sort of almost like quote step into the ring at a really high level of competition. I'm curious whether you have any you know rituals that sort of like you embrace as you're getting ready and then step into it and whether there, you, you sense that there's any sort of like almost emotional or psychological shift that happens
2: yeah so i used to do this thing where i used to take a bath before every tournament roommate i remember but what are you doing and i just take a bath and I'd put on music and i would just like visualize myself on the podium or just like actions right so like because they're going to happen and if you know they're going to happen you're prepared for them right so i'd always understood that the, the mind is 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 everything right? The mind is everything. So, if you can somehow understand that, like things are gonna happen, but stay the course no matter what. Because if the referee makes a call and you don't like it, you're gonna get mad. It's gonna ruin your whole everything. And I'd always put on music. I make playlists before. I was never a big eater before I fenced. I got like somewhat nervous. while I'd be light on my feet. And you know, like these guys would eat food and stuff, and I'd be eat. I had a coffee, banana, and some bread. Some eggs or something, but like very light, and I was visualized. I was just like, I'm gonna you know visualize my actions in my head and and then I' just turn into this person who you couldn't even get into my brain. like you could be yelling at me and I won't even hear you. it's just this that's the definition of being in the zone, and the hard part is getting into the zone before you start. Some some days you're not honest as you are, and then as I started to get older, I started to realize how important this is. This is easy to train. Fenty easy to train, but this is a whole nother animal. So I started to meditate. I started to visualize, I started to draw. I started to paint the picture literally of, of who I'm gonna go up against. The night before I'd manifest myself just destroying you <laughs> in my room and in, in a weird town in Germany or a weird town in Italy, just manifesting. And then I was just like, Roz, have fun, just go for it. Like, don't think twice. And and always go with your first option, and that's what I did. Oh,
0: that's so interesting. So it's almost like a, it's like a three part ritual. So like there's the bad thing to just relax, then there's the mental intense focus, like in the visualization and the focus and the the meditative aspect to it. But then it sounds like when it's actually time for you to step into. The experience, you just let it all go and just be like, let me just be fully present in the moment.
2: Fully present, fully free, just have fun. My coach is like, play with purpose. That's what he always tells me, and it's just like if you can just play but with purpose, that fine line, that that sweet spot is just, oh, it's beautiful. It's not easy to get that all the time, obviously, but if you can get into that sweet spot, oh my god, it's that's what you live for. And it's just like, I'm just getting started in my sport. I think myself, which is scary, but I think I'm just, I haven't tapped into what I'm going to be able to do yet.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's amazing that everything leading up to it is the mindset of a warrior and ferocity. And then when you're actually in it, it's the mindset of a kid just playing.
2: (laughs) Exactly. Like being a kid, because kids are so pure, right? Kids don't know any better. They just do what they feel. If you can be that kid all the time, you're so dangerous because kids have kids have no fear if you can have that aspect of a kid but also the mind of a an adult i think you're so dangerous
0: yeah when you step into the match do you feel like i've heard a lot of um competitors describe it as almost like they're stepping into another identity or
2: another personality Mm -hmm. Does that happen to you? I'm curious. Every time I put the mask on, I'm a superhero. I'm a, when I put this down, I'm a different person. Like I can joke with you and have fun with you. And when I'm, you know, in the green room or just chilling, this is what I like to do. I like to mess with my opponents all the time. I'll just joke with them and I'll be, oh look, you know. And then once this game over, I'm just honestly, it's crazy. My coach is like, dude, are you two people? I'm like, I don't know. But it's like it's so important to be able to like, get into that mindset of just like, ah, and then when it's game on, boom. And then when you, when, when you're done, forget about it, have fun. My coach was like, have fun, walk around. And then when an hour before, let's get back into the zone.
0: Yeah. I mean, the idea of almost having an alter ego, I know, um, I actually have some friends who do that and they have little names, um, for their alter ego. And, um, a friend of mine actually wrote a book about this phenomenon. He calls it the alter ego effect. And, um, What's interesting is is he he would share that a lot of people who access this, especially high level athletes, they have some sort of item that sort of like t- turns you from you know the the Clark Kent to the superhero type of person um for one of them, it's a pair of glasses. It sounds like for you, it's the mask like when the mask lowers down over you, it's sort of like that is the thing that that allows you to step into superhero mode
2: it is I just turned into a different person. it's like my no no matter what's going on in the world or my life or meeting, when I'm on this, all I'm thinking about is you as the opponent. So, things it's why, it's, why it's so powerful, why sports like change lives, you know? Because you can get out whatever you give in. So, if you want to work out, like also, you'll be rewarded. Might take time, but it's why sports are so hard, but also so beautiful at the same time.
1: Yeah.
0: Fencing is also really interesting, right? Because um, similar to gymnastics, you're both an individual competitor, but you're also part of a team. Yeah. And I know that's that's been a big part of your experience. You know, like when you are in a match, it's just you and the other person, like nothing else exists. But in the larger context, you're still a part of this group of people. And both, it seems like both play a really important role in who you are and what, what you love about it.
2: Huge deal. Huge deal. And I think they go hand in hand. We can't be one one without the other. So it's very, yeah, there's so much to learn. Like every day I learn more and more about just yourself or life or whatever that might be just by practicing, you know? It's crazy. It's crazy.
0: Yeah. You're competing and you're doing well. You know, you're really kind of rising up when you're younger. You end up at Penn State continuing defense through your whole time there. And along the way, you start to compete at, at super high levels. Curious what, you know, you sort of shared in the early days, what the perception was of the fencers when you were younger. When you're in college, did that change? Or, or was it sort of like an extension of the early perception?
2: It was a little bit the same. But I think because we, A, I won a lot and B, like Penn State, like they were national champions, like way before I came. So like they had the stigma of being a team that wins no matter what. So it, it, when I went to Penn State, it was like, you weren't really made fun of that much. And then I went to the Olympics right when I got there. So <laughs> that kind of changed a lot for me. I was like, you yeah, know, it's incredible, you know. So I was also on a different playing field than else because I was never in the school because I was always traveling for my Olympic team. So I didn't finish school, obviously, because I signed to Nike. But like Penn State, they, they were amazing. I love that school. Um, and they were amazing with accommodating me and making sure that like, I was competing for NCAAs, but also I was competing for my Olympic team and my World Championship team. So I was going to Ohio State one weekend, and I was going to Italy the next weekend. So I was literally never in school. So I, I missed out a lot there too. I missed out a lot on that stuff. And I come back Sundays. I have to go right into training on Monday, into work. So it was – I didn't want to go to college, honestly. I didn't even think I needed to, but I wanted to get the experience for at least a year or two.
0: Yeah was that weird for you though? I mean, I can't imagine sort of like, you're hanging out with your friends in college. you know and I re- you're a freshman in college. We all know, you know like freshman life in college or something You're hanging out, you're, you're in Pennsylvania, and then you kind of vanish for three days. You're over in Italy competing, and then you come back and you're like, "Oh, 9 a.m. class." That must have been so strange for you.
2: It, it, I, was, I was honestly living in a different world, because nobody could relate to what I was doing. I'd literally be fencing all, I had to like win to double A's and I have to try and win the world championships and i like have all those mm-hmm. obligations and I like had to still be eligible for, for school and i try and see my friends and all that. And I mean, I can't complain, but um, it was a lot to juggle for sure.
0: Yeah. So you, you show up freshman year, you end up in the Olympics. So you're what, 19 something, somewhere around there, right?
2: I was 20 at my first Olympics.
0: But yeah. Right. So here's the thing that you've been working towards. You've been telling people um, you're going to for years now. And the first time you go and you show up there, like you step off the plane, you step into the Olympic village. What's that like for
2: you? For me, it was surreal because it was in my hometown. It was in London. So like my grandma, my nans for me, my aunts, my uncles, my hooligan mates who were like, oh, you're in the Olympics, bro. Like who have never changed. <laughs> we work at pubs, you know, and they were like, so it was honestly the most surreal experience for me because it was my hometown. So my first tattoo was from London to London, with the rings on it, underneath it, you know. Because it's like, so for me it was extra special, and I will never forget opening ceremony. I will never forget that experience for the rest of my life. It was crazy.
0: Yeah, tell me about the experience also. So you're there. I mean, just getting there in the first place. Like you said, it's London. This is, you know, like your hometown. That alone is really powerful in the opening ceremony. When you finally step into your first match, when you're like, okay, so this has been fun. This is awesome. I love hanging out with all these yeah. like people who are world-renowned and it's an amazing community. But now it's time to actually do the thing that I have been not only training to do for life, but telling people, like, this is where I want to be. And in the moment where you actually step in and say, okay, this is time, what does that feel like for you?
2: You don't really know. There's no word. It's just surreal, right? Because you walk out there and you see everyone, like 15,000 people, just screaming for you. It was funny because so the announcer was cool actually. He was like, Britain's own, but not really. Coming out of the United States. Like, I had Great Britain kind of behind me and America. But it was amazing. You know, I had a great first match, second match, and third match. No, sorry, the second match was when I fenced this Egyptian kid who. Never forget, I debuted the, the new Nike. I had these vaults, which is like highlighter green shoes, highlighter green socks. And I remember changing the way I fenced for some reason. Something switched in me, right? I put too much pressure on myself. I wasn't having fun. I was tense. And I knew I was like, mm, this is going to be tough. And I beat this kid 15 3 before, and he ended up getting second. His first ever medal. He got silver medal. In Olympics. He almost won the Olympics. I can't. And I was so sad and pissed off. So sad. And I was like, all right, team, we got fourth. And I was like, oh, my God, no, we didn't win no medal. I was like... And I told myself, I remember sitting outside the balcony with my teammate, Garrick, and I was like, I'm going to be world champion next year. He was like, okay. I don't know why I said that or how. I just went into that season, like, just so... Determined. I was just like, it was the most mentally ready I've ever been. And I was the first American to ever become world champion. And I remember sitting on the podium and like crying, tears on my coach, hug my coach. And I was like, wow. Like first ever American to win. Like first ever African American to win. I was the first ever American to ever win. And I was like, that's when my life changed for me. But I, I needed to lose in the Olympics. Unfortunately, to know what I had to do for the rest of my career, if that makes sense, which is a very painful lesson to learn. But if I didn't learn that lesson, I don't think I'd be where I am to this day with success. When I was there, I thought everything was over. I was like, I'm going to back to Penn State, a loser. You know, I was like, I don't want any of this gear anymore. That's how hard it was on myself. And then, oh, dude, you should be happy to be here. I was like, I don't care about being here. I want to win this thing. So that was like a weird. Switch for me.
0: Yeah, I mean, do you? It's interesting that you had that sort of that momentary shift in mindset that just says, "Okay, it's almost like snap out yeah. of it." You know, yes, this was brutal. You know, this was the exact opposite of what I wanted. But you're not done because um, a lot of people would be done at that yeah. point. But there was something in you that said, "Not only am I, you know, like not done, but." Next year, these next 12 months, I'm going to become the best I can.
2: I went to like a, just a different mode of just like who I wanted to be. And I knew when I won that, I was like, I'm leaving college. And then I won and then I got, that was the first fencer that Nike ever signed. Fencer, and I was like, okay, wow. It, sponsorship happened and then things just took off for me.
0: Yeah. Let, uh, let's talk about that a little bit because I think it's really it's, it's interesting, right? So let's talk about the economics of fencing. Because you know when you look at a lot of sports, especially a lot of athletes that end up you know, wanting to compete in the Olympics, the economics are kind of brutal, um, especially the ones where they're not sort of prepping for a pro career after in a giant league with potential huge paychecks and huge sponsors. What do the economics of fencing look like for most people? And then how did that change for you?
2: I mean, most kids live with their parents and so most kids work a job in fences for the second career, right? Most of them don't make money. Like none of them have sponsors, unless you're like in Europe or Asia, where it's different. You're a government sport, you're, you're, you're taking care of your, you know, your celebrities, if you're in Russia, you win a medal, you're on billboards. In America, no, there's nobody that I look up to like, oh, he's doing something cool. No one. And fencing, right? Cause it's like, how do you make money? They're like, oh, let's just go to college. And then I'll leave fencing and make make money. That's what most people think because that's the only real economic benefit is to use fencing to get into college. So I was like, no. I was like, not that ma- money matters, but I, I was like, hey, I want to be the first fencer to ever make a million dollars. That was like something I always I was told myself when I was 16 to my mom. She looked, looked at me like I was insane. But I was like, no, I'm going to change this. I was like, I'm going to be me and I'm just going to change the sport. And then, you know, I think... I'm on the way to doing that by just not only getting sponsors, but also putting fencing on the light that it's ever been in. TV, commercials, magazines, events, you know, like, so I was always the first to do that, all that stuff. And I think that's what brands also see me as like, I'm someone who's taken fencing from niche to mainstream, right? But I'm also showing kids that if you're good enough at something, you can be great at anything. And... This is something I was writing down yesterday in my little notebook over here. I told myself that I never want to be a statistic. I want to be an anomaly. A tattooed black fencer. Like, that sounds like you're seeing a unicorn in the streets. So, that was, I think, what was the difference between me and everybody else. is I did see the vision, even though it might be crazy. I saw the vision. And all, all I needed to do was see it myself. I didn't need anybody else to see it. Not my mom, not my dad, not my sisters, not, I was going to make it happen.
0: Yeah. I mean, when you think about it in a weird way, the very things that you got punished for as a fencer in the earlier days, especially were the same things that have let you kind of redefine the sport to a certain extent, you know, like like who you are. The fact that you're like, yes, you know, like I'm six four and I'm covered with tattoos and and I'm going to be a hundred percent me in this sport. Those were the things that that punished you earlier um, mm-hmm. because culturally, you know, like you quote didn't fit, you know, so people would be able to express bias or judgment against you by in your scores. And yet those, the very things, the things that make you unique individual in this sport are the ones that now are allowing you to draw sponsorship, to draw attention, to draw new people to it, to, to change the conversation. And so it's interesting how you sort of flip the script to a certain extent.
2: Yeah, for sure. And I think like my goal is, you know, my, my foundation is to empower you through fencing, right? Whether that means you're white, black, doesn't matter. I just hate wasted talent. So I want kids to see if you're good enough, I'm going to find you and I'm going to take you on my wing to make sure that you have none of these barriers that's going to stop you from reaching your goal. So that's what I just want to do. I want to inspire these kids to say like, listen, Miles did it. I can do it too. That's all I want is that. So, cause I never had someone go, oh, he did it. So if I can be these guys, these people that they look up to, then that's the reason why that's the bigger reason, bigger than any medal by far, Big, way bigger than any medal is to inspire a kid to see his, see him be like, oh, wow, I could do something. That's for me. The greatest gift i could give someone
0: yeah was that shift in priorities something was there something that happened that made you say you know what there's something that's actually more important to me than winning competition or was it sort of just like a gradual evolution over time
2: there was over time i think like when i started to reach like this level where like i would go to competitions and people would like surround me swarm me like i gotta go to russia and people would start crying i was like why are you crying You know, I was like, oh, you mean so much to me. And I was like, whoa, that's when I was like, I never knew I had this effect on people, right? Like I never knew. So that's when I was like, oh, wow. It's not just you, Miles, like it's, you gotta take the sport and, you know, use this broad shoulders and take the sport on your back and, and let's give this thing a ride. That's when I was like, oh my God, like I can really, I have a real impact on the sport, you know? And that to me was the shift seeing people really like see me like in this light. And I was like, whoa, makes you want to win more. You know, that's like, that's a good pressure on you. I love pressure.
0: Yeah. Apparently (laughs) when you think now, you know, so you've built this career now where you get to do the thing that you love to do. You have completely broken the mold and rebuilt it in a way where the economics actually work for you, where you have attracted high level international sponsorship and also attention to not just you but to the sport and like you just shared you know a real commitment to turning around and then giving back and saying or or you know combination of giving back and paying forward saying you're like okay so I got here but part of what I'm here to do is affect other people and open doors and show them what's going on when you think about where you are right now the opportunity that you have to play you know in in the lives of so many different kids, potentially, do you ever reflect on the early days, the moment where Ellen Grayson saw something in you that was different and sort of like encouraged you to change and and, and to do something really different?
2: One hundred percent. Without her, I don't know where I'd honestly be. And now I can see, I can use what she gave me, the tools that she gave me, to use that onto, onto other kids as well. And I see myself in some of these kids. You know, I'm like, oh, look at this kid. He's he wants to wear crazy hair. He wants to be different. I'm like, do that, you know. Embrace who you are. And I think something too is like, I did a talk with Instagram, and I was like, it's a great thing when people make fun of you. That's the number one form of jealousy. It Means you know something right. So I always tell them, I'm like, the more I hate, the more love that comes in the back end. So don't even, don't even worry about that, you know. Feed off of that, you know. That's so I always tell kids. I'm like, take the words, C A N T out of your vocabulary work harder than anybody else in the world and never lose sight of why you started the sport, no matter what. And that's the little piece of mind from Wales.
0: <laughs> it feels like a good place for us to come full circle too. So hanging out in this uh, container of good life project, if I offer up the phrase to live a good life, what comes
2: up? To be generally content and happy. Cause those are hard words to actually feel you know to be happy is like no i'm gonna like, get you happy it's like to be happy is generally happy nothing beats that If you're generally happy nothing beats that mm, thank you pleasure man thank you